Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is Aaron Kimberly. Aaron Kimberly is a mental health professional or clinician working in Canada. We speak about eating disorders. We speak about mental health as an industry right now in Canada. We also speak a lot about queer theory and how that is infecting Uh, transgender medicine and transgender psychological help. And uh, Kimberly's got a lot of investment into this particular community and in this fight, and we get into why as well. This is a very informative conversation and is a part of an ongoing series on gender, sexuality, and transition. If you want to listen to more of this kind of content on this issue, I will link the playlist down in the description. Here is Aaron Kimberly. I'm a mental health clinician. Um, okay. so I've, I've always worked in uh, general mental health, um, a few years uh, in a specialized eating disorders program, and then more recently um, with youth in a youth clinic. What ages? 12 to 24, up to the 25th birthday. Oh, okay. And how long have you been? Did you specialize in that? Did you know that you're that's what you're uh, wanting to head into, or did you stumble into that particular with youth, with, or yeah. mental health in general? With youth, that was something I, I stumbled into really, um, and I, I love it. I love working with youth. I, I feel like I make the most difference working with youth because they're not as firmly entrenched in whatever it is they're they're going through. They're they're pretty often receptive to to change. They've got, you know, their whole life ahead of them. And, um, yeah, I, I really like working with youth. Hmm. And how long has, do you know the history of eating disorder specialization within the, uh, mental health field? I don't really know much about the history. I got into eating disorder someone somewhat by accident because I was, um, working in a hospital in the mental health department and, uh, Eating disorder, provincial eating disorders program for adults was part of the mental health program, and sometimes they would be short-staffed, and they'd have, they'd want to pull nurses from other units. And I noticed that all of the other nurses, you know, really hated the idea of being pulled up there, and some would outright refuse. No, I don't want to. I don't want to go up there. And it was so it was sort of this mysterious, what's going up there on up there on the fourth floor that everyone's so afraid to go up there. And I have a natural curiosity for that sort of thing. And uh, there was a temporary posting up there and I thought, well, this will be my chance to figure out um, what this is about and um, why, you know, how their program is so different from the the rest of mental health. And I ended up really loving it. They had a fantastic team there. Um, I really enjoyed the work and enjoyed the clients and, it was a, an interesting mix of mental health and, and medical as well. So kept my kept my skills fresh and ended up being there for about five years. Okay, that eating disorders 
was kind of a hot topic. I don't know exactly when, maybe 90s and early aughts. I, I don't know, maybe even the 80s. But I know it was a really big hot topic. And um, there was even, I'm sure there's studies on it, but the notion of social contagion, especially with youth and uh, you know, an eating disorder kind of link in. Um, do you see that that pattern repeating in other areas, or what was particular about eating disorders that just like? Yeah. You know, and I would say I would say that there's some there's some merit to that idea of social contagion and eating disorders, um, which isn't to say that's the only factor. I mean, there seem to be a lot of factors that contribute to you know a true eating disorder, but even those that you know were diagnosed and I saw in treatment, you would see them kind of. There was sort of a pecking order in the eating disorder world where those with anorexia were at the top of the pecking order and those with bulimia were kind of aspiring to have the self-control that someone with anorexia had. And so you'd see these these interesting social dynamics when you put them all together and and they would sort of share notes and compare notes. And there there was for some of them, not all of them, of course, but for some of them, it was very much a part of their identity and and a part of development of a culture. Um, and some of them that them even, you know, started organizations, um, you know, for advocacy, and it really could be all-consuming for their for their life, and um, which is always a you know uh, something that we had to be aware of as clinicians when we're bringing these folks, young people together, that we got to be have to be careful that we're weighing the benefits and the risks to that if they're um, if they're getting worse because of their proximity or being in a, in a group uh, of people with a similar disorder for weeks at a time. Um, and I've seen um, or heard people talk about parallels, you know, with social contagion, with gender dysphoria as, and comparing that to eating disorders. Um, and that was one of the, one of the first things that sort of tweaked my interest in, in looking at that because I, I, I can see some parallels having, specialized in eating disorders for a while. Um, it does seem to be a similar a similar type of person, if I can say that. And, and that's not based on a study that, or, you know, that's just based on working with these two populations yeah. um, and, and just seeing some parallels in how that's presenting and, and what function it seems to serve for some of them. What are some of the personality traits that would predispose just to, and this isn't scientific just kind of the mm-hmm. pattern that you see in the personality traits or the tendencies that predispose young people to you know, kind of get into a disorder in, in more than just having a disorder but really kind of getting into and gravitating toward what we think of it as a disorder you know just off the top of my head i mean with eating disorders we and, and the clients would would usually say this too. It's not really about the food; it's it's about their internal world, and um, hmm. especially for those that um, were more on that the anorexic side of the spectrum, not the not the bulimia side of the spectrum. For a lot of them, it, it seemed to be about control. And one of the patterns that I saw um, for some of these young people is they came from families where where parents were you know, kind of what we might call like type A personalities, very strong personalities, quite authoritative approach to parenting. And 
I think for some of these young people, the eating disorder, what they put in their body was something that they had total control over and nobody could take that away from them. Um, so I think for some of them, it was very much about finding some sense of control in a family dynamic where they, they didn't feel a sense of control. Um, and sometimes when they separated from their family as they got older, you saw some of that resolve. Um, and uh, very high co comorbidity with eating disorders and personality disorders. Um, so a lot of people with a dual diagnosis of borderline personality or um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, both of which are also based on 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 control and um and i think one of the one of the parallels too that i've seen with some of the folks that that latch on to the you know a gender dysphoria culture um or i wouldn't even call it that let's say a queer theory culture hmm. it's very um it's based on a set of rules and i think i think for some people that lack internal structure they're very drawn to movements of all kinds where that provides a kind of structure for them it's it and that provides a sense of a comfort and safety for them if they just especially if they're struggling socially they're looking to connect and the, the the we're meant to connect to others and that so that when that's not that need isn't being met i don't think we can underestimate um what lengths people will go to to feel connected to somebody so if they're, um, you know, we do see a lot of uh, kids with autism and ADHD um, and personality disorders in the gender dysphoria um, clients that, that come through our clinics. And um, so it, it is a story that I would hear over and over again. Of course, I'm not going to tell anyone's specific story, um, but in general terms, very lonely kids that are struggling socially, struggling to feel connected. I think some of them feel drawn to the idea of here's this group that if I just learn a certain set of rules um, to simplify social things for me and and seeing that well that a lot of people in that group seem kind of quirky and and maybe struggle with some of the same social things I do and they feel a, a sense of belonging and, and connection if they if they can just follow those rules so it's not unlike getting drawn into certain um, religious communities, or uh, I, I think it serves a very similar purpose for some of these mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. The criticism, I was just reading an article uh, this morning about kind of, a, it was a loose history of cults and then uh, negative reactions to cults within America. America has this storied history of religious freedom and also a fervency of community, culture, and identity and how that all fits together. And I, didn't, I couldn't get to the end of the article because it was just one ac example after another example. It was so much information. I was just looking for the meaning. I was looking for the analysis of the information. But you, you hear a lot about on a certain level of cultural critique, we, we say it's, a, it's like a religion, it's like a cult. But the question is, what draws people into certain formalized structures and, uh, these, and what causes these formalized structures to become more authoritarian, more censorious, more uh, damaging to the body politic at large? And then what methods of identifying people who are predisposed to that and then giving them tools to resist the more negative aspects of uh, rigid adherence to a belief system. And I think that the psychological route might 
provide some tools and studying people as individuals. Uh, so with that in mind, what are some of the things that you said earlier that certain people lack an internal sense of order or organization. How do you foster that in an individual? Yeah, that's a good question. And and it's, you know, it's a matter of identity too. And it's hard to have a single answer to that because it, yeah, it, you know, it, it depends like, is that, lack of internal structure or that or the social challenges because of you know borderline personality disorder i mean the treatment for that is quite different than the treatment for let's say autism or or adhd um but i think it would go a long way for people to i mean develop social skills um so there are you know social skills development um, groups for people with with autism for example um and developing a sense of identity that that is beyond you know what their body looks like or how other people are perceiving them and um, learning to, to develop healthy social interactions with with others and feel connected in uh, you know over things like interests rather than a reinvention of self in order to fit into a certain group. Yeah, I yeah, I was leaning towards. When he said interests, uh, when I built my identity, I clung to creativity as my identity. Like I wanted to be a worker of some sort. I wanted to be a poet. And uh, you know, some people like back in the Middle Ages, you were named after your task. And your task was your identity. You're the Miller or the Smith. That seems to offload a lot of the kind of behavioral quirks of certain cultures that are formed out of an identity that we derive from something like Facebook or Twitter, uh, all those little signifiers you put in your bio, that kind of identity, what does it produce? And then how do you verify if you're authentically, you know, let's not to bash on non-binary, but how do you actually define non-binary in the world as opposed to I'm a miller, so I take grain and I turn it into dough. Like that's a very rooted so yeah. it's it's interesting in this world and then when you're bringing up social skills like how does this generation right now develop social skills through the mediation of all this technology it's like yeah. it's such an uphill uh, struggle for them it, it's a yeah it's a battle against social media and I, i'm a parent myself with four teenagers um wow. you know, and two of them have, have adhd <clears throat> so keeping them off of social media is or to some extent is, is goes a long way to um, to managing their symptoms and, and fostering more social connection because as soon as you know we take away the Xbox controller they're now engaging with us in the house and and driving us crazy again so <laughs> but um, you know, a, a young person I was talking to uh, recently um, made a really astute observation because uh, he was saying that he through this his online interactions in the social media world that the the queer theory dogma seems to come in waves um and that he has seen more of it online through this this covid pandemic uh with people being online more and um you know we, we've i've heard people who work in eating disorders saying that there's a a new wave of, of eating disorders presentations as a result of the COVID pandemic. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we would see other types of uh, 
you know, waves of, of different social contagions that are related to social media use. I mean, that, that mm. makes sense. And how do you counter that? Do you have any thoughts about that? Other than, uh, you know, unplugging, what are some skills that you think we could be fostering, especially in young people, to be a little resistant to certain, you know, cultural viruses, a certain... Mm-hmm. Of, uh, I, I know that, that my kids do better when they're involved in things, especially physical things. So it, it's, and it's harder in the COVID days because a lot of groups and classes and stuff for them are cancelled. But um, COVID aside, I think really fostering their interests, right? I mean, as soon as they, have, they express interest in, hey, I'm interested in playing guitar, we sign them up for, for guitar lessons. Or if they're interested in gymnastics, signing up for gymnastics lessons where they they interact with people through the things that they're interested in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, the verification of, I guess, authenticity or participation in that group is hung upon some sort of action. You can hear a guitar, you can hear and judge whether or not you need to work more or you're yeah. particularly gifted, you know, which which there's a failure state built into these different tasks, but also over time and exposure to these different tasks, you start to understand that there's mastery involved and that you get to experience growth as an individual, which uh, is different than being uh, judged based on whether or not you're saying the right thing or not saying the right thing. Yeah, it's hard to compete with um, the reward system you get in a video game. I mean, the, these kids can pick up, at, you know, a video game and and learn it so fast, master it so so quickly, and you get it's a very instant reward system, right? They're yeah. getting that firing in their brains, this rewards like every thirty seconds. In real life, we don't get rewards that quickly, right? I mean, learning an instrument, it's a lot of time put in before you feel like you've you've really mastered that that instrument. So it's um, it's hard with kids who have this, you know, kind of an addiction to the fast pace of a video game to get them to buy into, you know, the slower pace of real life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a distinction between anorexia and bulimia. I haven't really researched that at all or really dove into it on my channel specifically, but you seem to say that there's kind of a different modality of personalities involved or could you explain that a little bit uh, the mm-hmm. differences between those two conditions yeah um those that fall more into the anorexic pattern it's um it, it's all about maintaining a high level of self-control and they get a lot of a lot of pride often from that from being able to, to pull off this you know overriding their hunger instincts and and meeting these goals, you know, these weight loss goals. Um, so it's it's control to an extreme. Um, whereas those with um, more of the bulimia pattern, so the binging and, and purging um, behaviors, tend to f- describe that as a, as a, the total opposite of, of feeling a sense of compulsion and and feeling out of control. Hmm. Uh, and they're more likely to also um, have substance use. Um, you know addictions as well and uh you know other compulsive behaviors where we don't really see that so much with those with anorexia hmm those it, it seems like there's two basic 
behavior patterns that are very common to all human beings. One is willfulness and the other is compulsion. Mm -hmm. And I think that we see the extremes manifested constantly. Those those extremes are constantly manifested. And within eating disorders, you see that, but I'm sure that we can see that in any given group activity. Uh, What are some of the best practices for instilling uh, mastery over compulsion? for, I guess, bulimia, because that really relates with what you were just saying about video games and binging and purging on the digital life. Yeah. Well, you know, because we would see in the eating disorders program, we would would see both of those clients simultaneously. And so our programming was designed for for both of them simultaneously. So even though it was manifesting on the two extreme ends, as you say, compulsion or, or control, I think it served a similar internal purpose of um, uh, of moods that they felt were were out of control. So some, if they felt um, a lot of anxiety, I mean, anxiety I think is probably the, the biggest one that they're that they're trying to manage. So for some, they manage the anxiety through that sense of control and mastery, and for some, you know, they're trying to manage their anxiety by binge eating, and then they feel awful about it and 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 purge. Um, mm. So I think, you know, um, mood regulation is, is key to, to either of those extremes. And that's, that's what we would focus on um, in programming on the unit was, was that emotional regulation. And what does that involve? Um, well, I, I mean, we were, um, there's a type of therapy that was designed for borderline personality disorder called uh, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT for short, we were a very DBT informed program. Um, so there are different components of that. Um, emotional regulation would be, you know, teaching relaxation t- techniques, uh, just identifying their emotions um, more readily uh, and then finding tools to, you know, to, to regulate that themselves, but also building um, a sense of identity and and social skills as well was was all is all sort of part and parcel with DBT training. Hmm. Do you see in, I guess specifically within queer theory culture, but in the larger network of associated critical social justice uh, waves that are going on? Do you see something that's counter to dialectical behavioral therapy or? counter to establishing control over moods or something that's counter mental health in that? Mm-hmm. Have you recognized? It's a good question. I hadn't really, I hadn't picked up on that, but it, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I'd have to give that, that some thought. I mean, whether it's counter to DBT. Well, could you quickly I'm, define dialectical behavioral therapy? Just so I have an yeah, I, I mean, the dialectical part means holding two things that seem opposing in, in balance to one another. And I'm, I'm certainly not a DBT okay. expert, um, but it's because it was designed for borderline personality disorder specifically. Um, and pe- folks with borderline personality disorders, they've identified several um, skill areas that that are needing in development in order for someone to to lead a more fulfilling life and and get on top of the symptoms so so social skills being one of those um emotional regulation being one so it's, there's a lot of uh, mindfulness um training 
uh, radical acceptance of, of being able to um, accept reality for what it is. I guess that's where the dialectical part is, is, is the radical acceptance of this is my reality as it is, including my anxiety or anything bad that may be happening, mm. um, while also fostering change. Um, hmm. So, but it, it, you know, in terms of the question of comparing that to queer theory, I don't, I, I don't know if there's a, like a direct counter to, to DBT, but there is something I think in queer theory that is destabilizing for sure and and i personally am of the opinion that hmm. queer theory is creating a mental health crisis in, in young people um i don't have that fully fleshed out as i you know like a, a theory yeah. or anything but it just it's been my observation over time um you know i've been in connected to the trans community for a long time um so i I studied queer theory back in uh, the early 90s, right at the, right at the beginnings of it, when Judith Butler's book was first published. Um, and at the time... Were you attracted to it at that time? At that time I was, um, which I'm kind of cursing now, but, but well, at the I, time... You were it, in it, your 20, 20s or teens. Sure. Like, I was in my early 20s back then and was in art school. I took, um, my friends and I took queer theories as an elective at one of the, the nearby universities. And, um, yeah, it had an appeal to me. But back then it had a playfulness to it. It, it. For a group of artists, that was appealing because that the theatrics of it was something that we could very easily turn into art and, um, and had a lot of fun with it. Um, my concern with it now is it was never intended to be a clinical formulation. It was never intended to to shape our understanding of gender dysphoria as a disorder. Um, so Judith Butler wrote about transgender. Uh, it's my understanding the word transgender comes out of queer theory, not out of the, the clinical world. Transsexual came out of the clinical world. Transgender became has become, since since queer theory, transgender has come to mean, and transsexual is now a word we're not even supposed to use anymore. I, I use it. Uh, we're kind of reclaiming that word to, to mean something else now. Um, but transgender has come to mean something defined by queer theory. And that's one of my biggest concerns as a clinician. Um, so if I could maybe just back up a minute and just tell a little bit of that story. Um, so I, I did have gender dysphoria as a child from very early age. Um, I didn't know to call it that. Uh, the way I experienced it, looking back on it and trying to find words to describe it, I would describe it as cognitive. And I know we often use words like, well, I just felt like a man or I just felt like a woman. And I mean, that's nonsensical because what does it feel like to be a man or a woman? It's not a feeling. It's just it, we're, we struggle to find the words to describe what we were experiencing. And that was sort of a shorthand, but that shorthand has caused a lot of confusion and, and debate um, and it's caused as many problems as it's, as it's solved. So I've gone back and over my memories and my experience and tried to articulate that in a different way. And I would, I would describe it as cognitive. It, it wasn't an emotion. It was, it was a process of cognitive categorization. So from the age of three, I mean, we can figure out there's a dog and there's a cat, even though there's lots of differences between dogs and cats and lots of similarities. Um, 
lots of different kinds of cats and dogs, but still a three-year-old can point to a cat and say, there's a cat and point to a dog and there's a dog. And it's an unconscious process. I don't remember ever sitting down and kind of writing out a list. Well, this is all the things that cats are, and this is all the things that dogs are. It's, a, it's an unconscious process that we just pick up on automatically. And I had no problem doing that for other things, cats, dogs, whatever. And I had no problem categorizing males and females. That wasn't a problem. But when it came to myself, for whatever reason, I couldn't categorize myself as either male or female, but I, I felt like, you know, like when I looked at, at boys and I looked at girls or men or women, for whatever reason, I categorized myself more in the male category, even though I knew that wasn't exactly accurate. So the feeling that I had was from that, that cognitive dissonance. It was like a puzzle that I just couldn't solve. Um, even though there was evidence to the contrary of my perception, um, I couldn't stop doing that and categorizing myself that way, which is did very that, confusing. Did that cause, uh, I guess, distress or obsessing over that categorization more than other people? Or it did. Yeah, it did cause me a lot of distress just because um, everyone else seemed to have that figured out. And it was, so it was confusing for me, like, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? Um, I could, I could sense that I was making some kind of mistake and I had no explanation for why I was, why that was happening. So that's where the distress comes from, right? It is just um, because it, it creates this, this paradox in your mind of, you know, I can see evidence that I'm biologically female, but I'm categorizing myself as male and, and why would that be? And I couldn't think my way out of it. So that's, I think, what caused for me anyway, the, that rumination of, I, I need to solve this puzzle. Um, and, and I just, I couldn't, I could never resolve it. So going back to the queer theory thing and, and learning, because I went well into my adulthood, still not having any explanation for why this was happening. I did uh, the lesbian community as a young adult, and that started to make a little more sense to me. I grew up in a very small farming community where there weren't really any other gay or lesbian people that I, maybe one or two that I met. There were, wasn't a lot of diversity in how men present and how women present. So moving to the city and being part of a community where there is more diversity, I met some very masculine women who seemed to express having a similar experience that I had. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that's what this means then. It, maybe this is just something that some lesbians feel. And, and so I was starting to make sense of it. But then I quickly went to university and started studying queer theory. And for a person with gender dysphoria, it, it makes sense that queer theory would have a certain appeal to us. It sounded like it was articulating the gender dysphoria that I was feeling. And I, and I hadn't at that time ever heard of a transgender person. I'd never heard of anyone changing sex or, you know, going through... Um, sex reassignment surgery, that, that wasn't on my radar back then. This was the early 90s. Um, so you hear someone like Judith Butler talk about transgender and female masculinity. And so that, that appealed to me because it seemed to provide some kind of explanation for, for what I was thinking and feeling. But it made it worse. It made my gender dysphoria a lot worse, and it made the, dis the dissociation I had between my mind and my body a lot worse. Okay. Um, so it was an art articulation without a resolution. That's right. Yeah, it's because queer theory is all about unsettling our sense of male and female. 
but you know, I was saying earlier, it's, it wasn't. It's not a clinical formulation. You know, Judith Butler wasn't talking about the medical gender dysphoria. She, I mean, she's a she's a lesbian. This is literary rhetoric. Um, it's it's a political political literature, if you will. It, it's it's a very calculated use of words for a political ends, not not a clinical one. And um, and it's meant to destabilize our sense of male and femaleness. So when you when you enter into that rhetoric, already having gender dysphoria and this inability and this confusion around being able to to figure out what is a male and what is female, it may, it, my gender dysphoria went through the roof at that point mm. because of those theories. Um, okay. Because it just seemed to feed into that gender dysphoria, um, you know, by questioning, well, what is a male and female? Like, you know, like. You know, we we all know what male and female is, but but queer theory tends to break that down. It's like, well, is it is a man a penis? Well, if a man is in a car accident and loses his penis, he's still a man, so it must not be about a penis. And and so they they do that, right? That through the rhetoric of breaking down everything that we believe about male and female, and and complicating it somehow um, to the point where I think the the intent is for all of us to become confused about the distinction between male and female. You were already predisposed to ruminating about that category, yeah, internally, yeah. And then you get to queer theory, which is just the multiplication of rumination. Without it's it's just pure deterioration of everything through language. Yeah, you know, following yeah. critical theory uh, yeah, playbook. It's, it's throwing a match on on gasoline. Hmm. For, for someone that is, that is experiencing dysphoria, but I also have questions for someone that doesn't already have dysphoria, to what extent can those theories create a kind of pseudo-gender dysphoria? You know, if, if it's successful at breaking down someone's concept of, of male and female and biological reality, and um, it is a, it's a question that, that I have as a, as a clinician and a community member. Yeah, there's no sense of resting because any sort of stability is associated with power. Or, you know, there's all these theories of why they need to break down stability. But once you don't have your categories anymore, you can't just relax. Yeah, about basic things anymore. One moment, I have to take care of my cat. You said you were in art school, so was your artistic nature an outgrowth of your predisposition towards rumination or was creativity a way of uh, not just coping? I don't want to reduce creativity to a, a mechanism of coping, but was that a way in which you were able to overcome uh, certain instability at a, at a lower level? I think so. I, um, always drew pictures from from a young age and it was it was very much a grounding exercise for me I, I went to call it that as a five-year-old but I would call it that now I you know when I it, it's like a form of meditation it's a you know singular focus and um, it yeah it, I think it did a lot to just soothe my own anxiety and and a way of, of regulating my emotions it, um, I didn't do that with the intent it was just something I had, had some aptitude for, and, and that was sort of the added, added benefit of, of doing it. But in art school, once I learned queer theory, I think art school became um, 
a way to explore my identity. Um, so we were using my circle of friends and I were using art and, and taking these the queer theories and making art to illustrate those theories. Um, and, you know, I think people were doing that all around the world. I mean, everyone that was reading those theories probably took that into their whatever discipline they happened to, to be in at the time. Um, you know, but my circle of friends and I were very intentional in, because we were doing things like video and photography, even though I was drawing and painting. Um, once I learned queer theory, I started doing more photography and, and video because our intent was to take these ideas and create art that had the same look and feel as popular media. And we weren't doing that um, so much for you know, any kind of sneaky political ends. It, it was at the time more, more, far more naive than that. It was more about, I'm not seeing myself reflected in popular media and that craving for mirroring of our identities. Um, but the unfortunate consequence, I think, of, of what artists were doing around the world, I'm not credit, crediting myself for this, but, but by creating art that had the same look and feel as popular media and inserting it into popular media, I think did a lot to, um, to spread these ideas and, and, hmm. uh, you know, make people more receptive to these ideas because it, I mean, it ended up being an unintended, unintended propaganda in a way of, of disguising these, you know, a very rhetorical philosophical movement and, and inserting it into popular media. So you, it sounds like we need to make a distinction between representing, let's just say, very masculine women or the butch female, upping the representation of that. So specifically, just to because they're probably interesting characters that haven't been explored yet, so we can kind of exploit the, the richness of stories that haven't really been plumbed there, but also the, the secondary effects, which are now primary effects because of the way our culture is trying to be run, is that it, there's representation of this identity there. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not inherently bad. You're, you're saying that there's something else that was hijacking almost those particular outlying, uh, outlier identities uh, that that started to make uh, you're you, we're not you're not talking about media that turns people gay. Uh, you're, yeah. you're talking about there's something there's uh, ideas that are using let's just say homosexual representation to destabilize or to postmodernize uh, yeah society you know, at large. If we had just left that as hey these are some fun theories. Um, it, and ways of just kind of playing with our identities in a in a kind of David Bowie kind of way, you know, like it, okay. that, and that's the spirit that that those early theories had for us. Is this was when Judith Butler talked about the performativity of gender, we were interpreting that as as true performance. So you know, drag queens and drag kings, and um, it, it was an expression of gay and lesbian culture. Judith Butler is a lesbian; she's never come out as as a transgender man. Um, so we understood those stories as playful um, at, at the time. Um, and, you know, and then I forgot all about those theories and moved on with my, with my life. Um, but how did you, uh, how did you pop out of artist into what was the, what was the, the gap and how did you cross the gap from artist to therapist? Um, 
no money to be had in making art for one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Reality. <laughs> Reality was a big one. Uh, the birth of my daughter was, was a big oh. one. It's like, okay, well I need to be a grown up now and mm. uh, pursue something with more job stability. And, uh, and I, I took a, uh, family trip to uh, Africa, to South South Africa and Kenya, and um, was really moved by the impact of, of AIDS there. And uh, one of the people we stayed with there is a nurse in Africa, and I was just chatting with her a little bit about the work that she does. Um, and at that time, I was looking at making some sort of career change. I thought, you know, you know, maybe um, maybe nursing's the way to go. And I at, at my intent at first was to work in the area of, of HIV-AIDS um, treatment, um, but that evolved just by doing different practicums um, that I just decided that in our in North America, I think mental health um, has a much bigger impact at this point um, than HIV-AIDS and, you know, wanted, and it just had a, um, an aptitude for it and ended up really loving that practicum. And so I decided to specialize in mental health at that point. Mm. So in the art world, you, you released the contagion of postmodern critical queer theory, and then yep. you go off and then 20 years later, it, it's starting to seep into your. Well, that, yeah. So let's talk about that. Cause that's an important one. <laughs> So yeah, so fast you know fast forward. Now I'm a clinician, and and um, working with trans youth was something that was a newer thing for me. I had long kind of left behind the trans community. I mean, I, I did transition um, years, fifteen years ago, um, but uh, I did pick up on quite a few years ago that that the queer theory was making my dysphoria worse, even after transition. And so I, I very intentionally distanced myself from that and said, like, this isn't this isn't good for me. Um, I don't like where this is going, and and distanced myself from that. And and then several years later, decided you know because we were seeing more and more trans youth coming into clinics and a need there, and thought, well. It's an area of interest for me. I really enjoy working with with those kids. They're they're awesome kids. And uh, and when I say kids, like five year olds, this is like twelve to to twenty five. I, I I enjoyed it. And um, having been through the procedures, and I'm familiar with the W WPATH standards of care. And so I thought, you know, I'd have a little bit of education I need to do to make sure that my competency is is there. But it's not a you know the learning curve is going to be pretty pretty short for me. Um, so I got into working with the, the kids doing hormone readiness assessments um, and and receiving training from our provincial health authority, um, you know, to make sure that I was, because I had been out of the loop and, and wanted to, to see what's changed in this, you know, in the care provision at this point. And, you know, in the, in the trans and, and queer community, I, I've come to expect um, quite a few people are into into queer theory and, and conceptualizing their identities that way. That's not a surprise to me. That's it's been that way ever since the early '90s. But I was really surprised to the extent that those theories have become the the clinical definition of gender dysphoria. Um, you know that that now clinicians are the ones, not all, but but there are clinicians out there that. Um, 
seem to have abandoned the idea that gender dysphoria is a clinical condition of some kind in favor of um, the more the, the queer theory definition of, of identity that that we can choose identity and and you know the gender spectrum and um, and and then that works out to you choose where on the spectrum you want to be and then we'll tailor a hormone regimen to get you right there so the the yep. medicalization turns into a service of the identity rather than a uh, service to the disorder i don't know if i'm formulating that right yeah i mean it's hard to explain like why i find that upsetting but i think maybe the best analogy that i could come up with it is keeping in mind that the queer theory was never intended to be a definition of gender dysphoria the medical condition it, it's a political philosophical movement um, and and with the purpose of what I think with the with the purpose of advancing certain gay and lesbian interests I think was the original intent of it um, but now a lot of gay and lesbian people are wanting to, to distance themselves from queer from queer theory. So maybe eroding stereotypes of male and female to such an extent that heterosexuality isn't enforced especially violently or uh, homosexuality is suppressed especially violently. So just yeah. a little bit to uh, afford wiggle room for outliers uh, on the sexual, yeah. sexuality. Gender, gender nonconformity isn't new in the gay and lesbian community. I mean, by nature of being same-sex attracted, that's already a kind of gender nonconformity and, um, you know, more feminine men and more masculine women, that, that's been a part of the landscape of, of gay and lesbian culture for eons. So, um, so I think that was the intention, is just making that more socially acceptable. Um, but when you now combine that with gender dysphoria, I, I think it, it becomes a, a, a rather dangerous sort of mix. And so let me try this analogy and, and see if this, this kind of works to express my concern about this. So if we had any other, say, philosophical movement or, or political movement, um, so let's say a new kind of semi-religious sort of movement popped up and maybe they thought that psychosis was somehow part of their spiritual beliefs that 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 psychosis it has a certain social utility in this in this way of thinking and hmm. uh, and so they maybe see that as you have this elevated social status if you experience psychotic symptoms because that's proof of your religion you're, you're tapped into something more spiritual than those that aren't psychotic so if that group with that certain um, philosophical belief about psychosis took over the standard of care and the treatment of schizophrenia, so now that instead of schizophrenia being treated according to scientific medical principles, now that's shifting to, well, we see psychosis as, as being a very valuable thing. And, and so we're going to teach you as, a, as a someone who is psychotic, we're going to teach you our philosophical beliefs as a definition of what you're experiencing and we're not really going to treat it because you know with medication and stuff because that's part of the old system that we don't really buy into and, and so we're just going to kind of tell you that, that what you're experiencing is a valuable thing and a good thing and, and normalize that 
Well, to take this a little bit further, even going into schools and telling five-year-olds, are you psychotic? You might be psychotic. Here's some ways that you could be experienced. Do you get really angry at your friends and you imagine running them over with your dump truck? You might be psychotic. You know? Yeah. So I, it, it's amazing how far actual uh, the queer theory and then the promotion of gender dysphoria has gone, especially yeah. in education. Yeah. So I don't feel like the system of care is just about is focused on treating and understanding gender dysphoria. And so I got... I stumbled into the politics in this somewhat by accident, rather naively, not realizing the extent to which queer theory had entered into the system of care, right? So, I, I mean, I wouldn't go into um, most trans spaces saying some of the things that I said, but in a system of care amongst other clinicians, I expect to be able to have clinical conversations. I mean, I've been to lots of conferences and been parts of uh, communities of practice in other practice areas before. I'm used to certain conventions of speaking and, and thinking in a scientific sort of way, a curiosity about the diagnosis, a curiosity about out outcomes. Um, so it's, it really floored me when I entered in. So I was having, having conversations on a clinical listserv, uh, other clinicians involved in trans care, and rather naively just sort of started talking about, well, gender dysphoria as a diagnosis and what is it and, and my perception in having been trans for, you know, 15 years now. Um, I've met a lot of trans people and we do talk to each other and things that we say to each other in the, in, you know, the confines of a trusting friendship are different than what we might say to a clinician. And so I've heard all these stories and we didn't all transition for the same reason. We all came to it from, through a different pathway. Um, so it, it seemed logical, logical and reasonable to me to, uh, in the clinical work, when I have youth in front of me, it's like, okay, well, which pathway have they taken? You know, is this, and I won't use real names, but is, is this child, you know, my or teenager, I don't want to call them kids and give the impression these are five-year-olds, but, you know, teenager or young adult, is this one like, you know, my friend Dave who transitioned and then later realized, well, actually, I think I'm just a butch lesbian and, and, and nobody kind of taught me that and, and I was confused about that and now regrets transition. Or is it, you know, my other friend who um, maybe did it more uh, for political reasons, you know, because they really enjoyed queer theory and uh, transitioned, you know, as a type of female masculinity, not because they necessarily have gender dysphoria or, you know, so, I, you know, when I have these youth in front of me, it, it matters to me um, because it's going to matter to their outcome, right? How how I would support somebody with internalized homophobia or, or not understanding um, an evidence-based understanding of what gender dysphoria is, they have different needs than somebody who's maybe you know, has autism and doesn't pick up on social cues and, and is maybe struggling with categorizing male and female because of that. Like, and, and we know that there's a correlation between autism and, and gender dysphoria. So I'm trying to, I was trying to just understand what are the needs of each of these people sitting in front of me, not a care plan that we just kind of roll out to all of them, you know, in the exact same way, but a curiosity for how do I actually meet each of these youth where they're at hear their story and that takes time to get to know them and come alongside them and explore all of that with them um but where i started to get into into trouble um 
you know, the accusation being gatekeeping, that if you take the time to to really sit and understand and talk to these youth about what might actually, actually be going on with them, that that's now called gatekeeping because you're creating a barrier between them and the thing that they want. So, you know, these, these young people are, as you said, they're learning about queer theory concepts in schools. They're going online learning about... Uh, trans people, not gender dysphoria from an evidence-based understanding of gender dysphoria, but a cultural and political understanding of what a trans person is. So they're already coming into our clinics, already thinking they have, they already understand everything that they need to know about it and self-diagnosing themselves as, as being trans and saying, I want X, Y, and Z. I want hormones. I want chest surgery. I want these things. So where we're moving as a system and, and, it, not all clinicians practice the exact same way, but the pressure that I was feeling was we need to just accept that they are who they say they are and get them what they want as fast as possible. Um, so the assessment was really more about determining capacity to consent, not an exploration of their motives, not their explanation, ex exploration of, of their identity development, but um, more of a, of a queer theory understanding of we should just be supporting their identity and they are who they say they are. As long as they have the capacity to consent, we should not get in the way of their treatment in any way. It sounds like the, I don't, this analogy might go a little off the rails, but it sounds like you're only assessing whether or not somebody can drive a car, even though they're saying that they want to drive it off of a cliff. You're not assessing why they want to drive the car, where they where the car is going to take them. You're just assessing whether they can put their foot on the gas and, and basically just do the very basic minimum amount required when you already kind of know that they're only there because there's something else going on and yeah. what you're describing is a culture that's shutting down curiosity and uh, understanding and uh, you know assessment like actual assessment for the sake of some sort of urgency like what is counterbalancing that because that's a huge sacrifice for professionals to be giving up what are they sacrificing that for to save them I guess from suicide or, or something well, some immediate threat that's that's what I'm hearing, yeah, is that there's this urgency. I mean, A, that they're looking at it as a human rights issue, that we shouldn't be um we shouldn't be putting up any barriers to to medical treatment for a marginalized group of people. So that, that there's that framing. Hmm. Uh, well, I can't think of any other group of people that self diagnoses themselves for any disorder on the internet and goes to a doctor and says, This is what I have, this is what you need to give me, and the doctor just gives it to them so even from a from a human rights point of view it's it's not really making sense to me but yeah um there was another point i was going to make regards to that the urgency yeah so there the the side on uh, the, the clinicians on the side of gen, of uh the queer theory they rely very heavily on on community surveys um so when i received training in i don't remember a single clinical study being presented, which I would expect at most clinical trainings, any conference I've been to, they're doing slide presentations on the, the data, the read, you know, the peer-reviewed evidence. But they seem to rely really heavily on community surveys um, that that show um, you know, high rates of, of suicidal thoughts uh, and and suicide attempts. So the the fear is that if we're not providing them with immediate 
medical treatment that that they'll be suicidal. Um, and so if anyone that's that uh, appears to be putting up barriers and slowing the process down, um, we're kind of being told, well, well, you'd be responsible for someone committing suicide if if you do that. Um, but that's um, such a that's just so counter to a good practice. It just seems like so obviously a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, even you know the WPATH criteria for starting someone on hormones, you know, any mental health issue that they have needs to be reasonably well controlled before starting someone on on the treatment, which makes sense. It's a big, major life decision, and and it, it doesn't come for me as in a from a place of judgment. It's not that I, I you know really have an agenda to make as few people trans as possible. I just want these kids to be safe and and. Um, Transitioning is a very complex thing. It's not just about hormones. It's not just about your physical change. It's a very complex social, psychological process. Um, and I, and I, I'm concerned that these youth aren't being well supported through that whole process, right? Not just give them hormones and send them on their way to figure all that out on their own. I, I think they need a lot more support to, to, to manage um some of the social challenges. Like when I was early in my transition, I wasn't used to all the being all the social cues of being male. So when people hmm. started to perceive me as male, some of the social rules changed in ways that I didn't expect until you experience it. How do you how do you know? And I remember walking behind somebody a little too close on the sidewalk, and probably had done that thousands of times as as a, you know as a woman and never got into trouble and I, as far as i was concerned i was minding my own business walking down the sidewalk but a guy spun around um you know called me a faggot said i was following too close behind him and i thought i was going to get my teeth knocked out so these things happen and you have to learn really quickly how to adjust how you're existing in the world in order to in order to um, to manage, you know, is this appearing the other sex? And I don't know that these kids are necessarily well prepared to navigate all of that on on their own. I mean, some probably will navigate it more easily than others. But uh, when I transitioned 15 years ago, we talked a lot about that in the community, that it's not just a, a physical transition, it's a social and psychological transition as well. And, and those were the conversations we were having. And and we were very clear that like we would call it gender identity disorder. I have gender identity disorder. I'm biologically female, but I have this disorder. Not my fault that I have it. Um, and this is a treatment that I chose for it. It, it, it wasn't very complicated. Um, but that's that's kind of not how a lot of these young people are, are conceptualizing their journey anymore. And I hardly ever hear them talk about the psychological social parts of of the journey. It seems like, from what I gather from you and others that I've talked about, the onus was on the person who's transitioning. The responsibility was on them to transition, to follow this through. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of currents, especially within activist circles, that the responsibility is on society to change at the drop of a hat mm -hmm. and, and to focus upon that, that individual, which creates a self-reinforcing loop of narcissism and, and obsession over the identity and the obsession and the policing of discourse. And then you have this, all these, you know, the spill out effects of uh, what we see with the gender critical community and the trans rights activist community and a lot of tension in there because 
a certain group is demanding the entire world change around you know, this identity that they have and then they're they're framing it as a human right you know and then all this weird thing going on in law and all that stuff and yeah. it seems like the previous tact of accepting responsibility for yourself and and then the assessment on the part of the clinician is to see if somebody is able to be responsible for all that weight and mm-hmm. to go through all the processes of change and to make sure that, that they're going to manage any other health, uh, mental health problems mm-hmm. that might make that matter even more difficult. It seems like yeah. it's really stressful to begin with. Yeah, that has changed. And, and those of us that are still having, still have, you know, the, the older way of thinking about this um, are really shut down in the, in the community um so and we're we're the ones that are picking up this language i'm i'm a transsexual i'm not i'm not transgender because we want to create our own space and our own way of articulating our our identities and our our concerns uh separate from the queer theory movement but i remember even years ago i was on um you know a listserv of of other trans guys in my area and a conversation started uh, where a guy, young guy who would Early in his transition, um, his doctor patted him on the back and said, hey, lay off the burgers uh, to kind of say, you need to lose a few pounds. And the conversation immediately erupted into, well, that's fat phobia. And, you know, you got to tell that doctor off and let's write him letters and complain about this. And I popped in with a, a different way of looking at it. I said, he was treating you like a dude. That's how that's how men engage with other men. And most men wouldn't take offense to that. They might just laugh and make some joke and maybe they'll lay off the burgers and maybe they won't. Right. But there's, there's no, there's no um, power and equity. There is just two guys having a conversation and, and your doctor maybe is just trying to respect your identity and your transition by treating you like a male in society. And, uh, and we have a responsibility to, to pick up on that and, and learn those social cues. And so some of the guys on the, group were really angry by what I was saying, you know, that they wouldn't kind of depart from their more queer theory way of looking at this, that this is our identities and other people have to adjust to respect our identities, where I was trying to coach this young person to recognize these social cues that that exist between males. And that young person, so the moderator of the group said, okay, this conversation's over, you know, because this is inappropriate and we're we're not talking about this anymore. You're you're promoting these, you know, cis-normative or heteronormative, you know, social information, and that's not our goal here. But the young person I was having that conversation with, he was saying, well, actually, I'm finding this really helpful. So if we're not allowed to have those conversations amongst each other, and and, and that was maybe 10 years ago, so it, yeah. this is a new, it's gotten worse in recent yeah. years. But if we're not allowed even amongst ourselves to have these conversations to support each other to meet their transition goals where are these kids getting that from right so uh so i don't blame the youth because they're being taught these this queer theory you know as young as five in in public education they're seeing it in social media it's everywhere now they're picking this up and if they're transitioning they're not being supported you know to to figure out how to to navigate that and and the social complexities of that and and where how we fit in the world and um 
And now that there are more of us, these conversations about where we fit in the world are coming up more and more and more in sports and bathrooms and private spaces. We need, we, we have to step up to those conversations because they're important ones. And if we can't acknowledge our own biology or acknowledge um, that we're the ones with the condition that makes it hard for us, you know, the, the the whole idea of a gender identity isn't something that everybody has. That's a unique experience to gender dysphoria as a way of articulating gender dysphoria. But now it's being taught that everyone has this. Everyone, it's, it's kind of like spreading gender dysphoria around as, as though that's normal and convincing more people that they should have it. Um, hmm. Don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, just, I can't blame the young people for having meltdowns because other people aren't responding to them when they're not being well equipped yeah. to navigate that. And uh, it's not the young people's fault, right? It's they need um, good adult leadership to help them navigate that. In a certain respect, the certain tactics that we ascribe to postmodern or applied postmodernism or queer theory or the different theories they work when they are employed by the outliers and tiny drops it's like an acid it works when it's when it's contained but when the group begins to be coddled and served by the institution at large then that way of completely destabilizing everything arguing against normativity arguing against when you're arguing against normativity and that argument itself is a part is now the normal it completely it it doesn't work anymore it actually wrecks havoc on any sort of nuance on any sort of well maybe there's another explanation no even even offering another explanation is a sign of privilege or something it like it destabilizes everything it gets way out of way out of hand and that um It reduces options towards oh, and then and then what it actually leads to, which is really fascinating and really actually perverse, is that you're not only being shut down by people in your community that you disagree with. The allies for your community in the health f- field are mm-hmm. now shutting you down as a trans person in the name of trans people, and you, you see this in the race debate too. The, the you know, black person with a different opinion than the so-called black activist is now is a worse, you know, is even shut down by the white people. The white people now have more power yeah. because they're correct, uh, because they're fighting for that. It, it's just, it's really weird and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then ultimately what we have to rely on, unfortunately, is all the bad outcomes that are going to be stacking up the detransitioners in yeah. this uh, domain. Yeah. That, that's my concern as well, right? Is just how many of these youth are just getting, because these ideas, these queer theory ideas are being presented as fact. Um, and it's. And they're, they're actually designed to be anti fact, in essence, if you actually look at the root yeah. of where yeah, they come from. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, these young people have no idea where these ideas came from and what their original purpose was, right? It's being presented to them, whether it's, you know, by, by authority figures, whether it's a teacher or a doctor or, um, you know, they, they've got letters behind their name. And, and so we, we trust them. It's like, these are the gender specialists. We trust what they're saying. They know what they're, they're talking about or teachers, a child believes everything and, you know, teacher is going to teach them. So if it's being presented to them as this is just fact, everyone has a gender identity. 
Um, so here's the gender spectrum. We got GI Joe on one side and Barbie on the other. And so just feel where on that spectrum are you? And I mean, how many of us felt like a GI Joe or a Barbie? Right? There's there are a lot of us that could think of reasons for why we, you know, have parts of us at least that don't that don't fit that. And you know, and then you add any kind of psychological vulnerability into the mix. Um, that can it, it's not or a just basic puberty. Just basic run-of-the-mill puberty is enough to wreck you. Yeah, so I, I do worry how many kids are just being confused by this by this theory and then making permanent alterations to their body. Um, you know, and so I you know I don't say that out of a place of of judgment or transphobia or I mean I've done it my I've done it myself and and the treatment was helpful for me uh, for gender dysphoria. Um, but I still need a basis in reality. I, I don't deny that. I'm still biologically female. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a lesbian that had gender dysphoria um, and an, an intersex condition, um, and I, I chose a treatment for gender dysphoria. I, 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 it's not any more complicated than that, and um, so I, I think because I'm able to just see it in a in a fact based way, um, I'm able to to have conversations about sports bathrooms. You know, all these social social debates that are happening without feeling like that's a threat mm. or um, to your existence. Yeah. I, I don't cetera, yeah. disappear because that conversation happens. It, 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 I, and I understand the debates, you know, if, if women are feeling unsafe in, in bathrooms, okay, let's have a, let's have a conversation about that. How do we keep everybody safe? Um, so I, I, I worry that, that the kids that are, seeing their experience and their identities from through the lens of queer theory aren't able to have that conversation. And, and I think over the next five to 10 years, these, these conversations need to happen. Um, some adjustments are going to need to be made. And I just, I worry about the mental health of these kids. If they're, if they're not able to, to have that conversation because their thinking about this is so clouded by these theories, um, they feel it as a as a true violence. They you know they feel they experience those conversations as an attack. Mm-hmm. After the process, I don't want to presume to know how to ask this question, but once you decided on physical medical transition, and there were probably a finite number of steps to take, maybe maybe infinite, but at some point through that method of confronting and managing a persistent cognitive uh, what, what you're describing when you were younger mm-hmm. did that lay to rest the identity or the questions or that rumination so that you could move on did, did you say I, I went to the I went through these steps I'm done with that now I, I'm gonna yeah. go on to uh, not a, yeah yes and no I mean it's it, it made it manageable enough that, you know, I can get on with my life. I can, because I tried to push masculinity as much as I could as female bodied. And my, my reasons, because I didn't create gender dysphoria. That was pre-existing. I, I think, I think in my case, it was probably genetic and related to the intersex condition that I had. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but um, I, I do think, gender dysphoria has been there for as long as I can remember. So that part, you know, wasn't for me social contagion or, or anything that was just there. And I think was innate. And I tried to push that as far as I could within a female identity. 
um, as a butch lesbian. And um, mm. so we need to separate the existence of gender dysphoria, but the reasons for transition aren't just gender dysphoria. There's lots of reasons. When you, when you kind of break that down and talk to other mm. people, what was the tipping point for you? Because lots of people live with gender dysphoria and never transition, don't even identify as trans. Like a lot of the which women that I knew over the years had gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, what we called it back then, but they had incorporated, incorporated that into their identity as, as a lesbian. So I do think, um, hmm. you know, when you break down, well, why did I transition though? I mean, that's yes. Gender dysphoria was a part of that. Um, but there, I think there's, often other factors um so you know homophobia being one of them um so when i presented to the world as a very masculine woman which was just innate and natural for me um it wasn't a performance it was just i felt more comfortable in certain clothing and and short hairstyle and and my mannerisms so even when i was uh, um before I transitioned, people were still confused about what sex I was um, and didn't know how to engage with me. Um, I experienced homophobia. Um, it wasn't uncommon for me to go out, you know, to buy a loaf of bread and, and someone would make a rude comment about my hair or something. And so that all of those things were a factor in why I transitioned. Yeah. Um, and none of that goes away. And uh, some of that, the rumination is better, but it, I think early in my transition, I, tr I tried the more queer theory way of looking at it like a trans man is a man. Uh, and I tried to live my life that way, thinking that I was just a man, um, not unlike any other man. And, and I just, I couldn't make that cognitive leap. I couldn't, hmm. I could never, never really convince myself that that was true. I could never convince myself that anyone else would think that if if they knew that I had transitioned and, and I didn't know what to do with 35 years of my life prior to transitioning. Right. I, I, Cause you, if you're going to try to convince yourself, well, I'm just a man now, you have to rewrite your entire life story to fit that new narrative. And, um, hmm. you know, some will, will convince themselves, well, I've got a man's brain and a female body and now they match, but there's no evidence for that. I mean, I've read through the evidence and, yeah it's not there. Um, yeah. There's maybe some evidence that of a biological route to some types of gender dysphoria. Um, but there's no, whether you would, you know, think of this as a, as a neurological condition or, or a psychological condition at this point in my life, it doesn't matter to me. Like it, either way it, it, it happened and, and I had it and oops, too bad. Like it's, um, hmm. but um, I could see how queer theory if you stick, if you can contain it, contain just certain modules of it mm -hmm. and, and treat it as a literary solution to a categorical or cognitive uh, difficulty or mismatch, because you brought up rewriting your life or how do you understand your life? And if your brain or your culture, let's say your culture demands or infuses in you or nurtures in you this expectation that your life as a man will have this certain meaning and value, your life as a woman will have certain meaning and value. If you can deconstruct that and even go full gender critical and say gender doesn't exist at all, it might there might be the promise of a solution, 
but I think there's ultimately the error that you're there's something in us that is going to be telling the story that there's a there's a man there there's a woman there and there might be a way to really fruitfully explore what it means to be a very masculine woman or a very feminine male and and develop a very nuanced understanding of a trans identity as a literary identity as a mm-hmm. identity that has a certain role and certain just mannerisms and and behaviors. And then Mm -hmm. if you can express that as a part of society, as a natural outgrowth of the human experiment that we all are participating in, then we can have uh, acceptance of that and we can lead young people who are going through that down a path of of being able to fit themselves inside their story and for other people to fit them into their story too. But the problem is is that queer theory has this, it's got this postmodern deconstruction Constructive element to it that yeah. you ha- you have to be very careful with and yeah. doesn't belong being promulgated by authorities. It just it doesn't work because it, it will erode everything. And the yeah. normal let's just I'm sorry and I have to apologize because of queer theory. But normal males and females they have to participate in this deconstruction too. Then you're introducing all this stress and friction into lives that didn't have that. And then you're slowing down society as a whole from progressing and, and people to, to develop in other ways. So yeah. that was long-winded. I'm just trying to yeah. figure and, out how to integrate yeah. it all. And further along in your, in your question, like to what extent does medically transition help? I mean, it, I would say it did to some extent just in terms of just my own comfort in my own body. But it created a lot of problems, too. And, um, hmm. and Like medically? Yeah, I mean, medical complications, um, social complications. We don't have to get into that, but just like you have to, when we're talking about this, you have to weigh the the pluses and minuses and and the the compulsion right now to sweep away all the negatives because those are gatekeeping. It's leaving out a lot of the story. It is leaving out a lot of the story, but we're also always going to be confronted with some challenge to our notion that I truly change sex. Right. So whether it's my own biology, <clears throat> not cooperating quite the way I'd like it to. I mean, we, they can never make us 100 percent biologically the other sex. Um, you know, I even have to think about, I mean, with COVID, I mean, it sounds like they're saying COVID is impacting women differently than it is men. And and the vaccines are affecting women differently than men. And um, I have high cholesterol because of testosterone. And I thought, well, if I have a heart attack, am I going to have female typical symptoms or male typical symptoms. And, and so that, that never goes away. It, you're always going to be confronted with your biological reality and whether it's somebody using the wrong pronoun or, or just my own, my own body and mm. my own care. So um, it just, it just doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, I have to accept, and I've been called mm. trans for saying this, but I think, it's actually transphobic to deny my reality for, for what it is. Like to say that this has been my life experience, you know, having gender dysphoria, going through the transition as a treatment for it. That is my reality as a, as a trans person and owning that reality is self-acceptance. That's not, that's not transphobia. Um, but those that, that have built their identity, their trans identity based on queer theory, they experience what I'm saying as transphobic. And unfortunately it seems like people that think of it, as I do, seems to be more in, in some of the older folks, but um, we seem feels like we're the minority and, and we're the ones getting sort of pushed out of, of the community. 
Which adds a whole nother layer of stress because <laughs> your community uh, that you rely on and have relied on for so long, um, or, or at least in the very least invested so much of your time in helping other people through the medium of a community that itself is being uh, dissolved or threatened or, or filled with a bunch of stressors on top of that. Yeah, and, and of the young people that I've, I've worked with, you know, some of them have very much embraced the queer theory and, and they are the ones that seem to be joining the groups, uh, support groups and community services and th- those that that don't see themselves that way and they say they're just more like the straightforward what we might call transsexual they just they just want the sex change and get on with their lives and they have no interest in joining the group or being part of any community and i think for them that's probably a healthy thing hmm. so what resources do you have to offer a random person who stumbles in to this and their experience lines up with you or if you don't have resources available are you working on resources uh, I'm just telling your story or writing or yeah I don't I group? don't have resources right now it seems like most of the resources out there are kind of more the, the in the lines of the queer theory um, but um, I would like to create some so uh, so I'm not doing trans care as a clinician anymore at this point. I, I just, I don't feel good about it. If I have to hmm. have to adopt the queer theory way of doing it, I, I would rather not do it. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but I have the way that I'm going about it is I've created an organization called gender dysphoria Alliance Canada, which my intent for it is to, keep reviewing the evidence and keep working on developing educational materials based on an evidence-based understanding of gender dysphoria um, and advocate for that um, so that Mm -hmm. advocating that the system of care still meets the needs of people who just have gender dysphoria and and aren't interested in being a part of any political or or philosophical movement. They they just want treatment for their dysphoria. Um, So I don't feel at this point in time I can create that within the, the system, so I've removed myself from the system, and I'm doing that as, as an individual with uh, a network of, of other people who share my interests and concerns. Mm-hmm. So that is, would you mind saying the website out loud if there is a website for yeah, the listener? Yeah, www.gd, so standing for gender dysphoria, gdalliancecanada.com. Okay. And there's also SEGM, S-E-G-M dot com, which is Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. I just, uh, I interview, uh, I, I know people in that community too. I'm sure that we're connected in several ways. Uh, there are more yeah. and more resources being developed as people such as you and people uh, in with the same viewpoint see the need for that. Um yeah, and I was familiar with them. I don't, I don't know those folks personally, but I'm aware of the work that they do. Um, so I'm glad that someone's doing that from the clinician angle. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to kind of complement that by doing it from, from within the community um, to mm. provide some space and some uh, platform for people that do share my definition of gender dysphoria and, and my concerns. Um, if they're looking for resources or looking for a network of, of support, uh, that it exists somewhere. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will, I mean, it has been growing really quickly. 
Um, there's already some talk of, of a branch of it starting up in, in the U.S. Um, so there's, I'm not alone. I've, it's, um, hmm. it's been very, uh, very heartening um, how quickly I've been able to find others. That feel when did you start this particular project? Uh, or when did you come out? In, in January, capacity. we launched it in January. Of this oh wow! Year. Okay, brand new, and already getting quite a bit of traction. Yeah, it is. Do you have a fun hobby? Cooking, <laughs> collecting, creating, crafting—that uh, you're particularly keen on that you'd like to share? A hobby or plug? Uh, yeah, I uh, I play banjo. <laughs> oh really? Oh yeah, you do. Yeah. Do you have recordings of yourself that I can pl- put in the episode? Yeah, I can send you one. Okay, great. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I love having conversations of meaning and value about culture, but without a little bit of culture, like there's always something missing of yeah. the human. Yeah. I still paint uh, off and on. It's it's hard to find the time. Oh. I've got four teenagers at home and and two dogs and it's a busy household and so i don't always have time to sit and paint it takes a lot of very focused time to do that yeah. so i drive my family crazy with banjo playing instead <laughs> <laughs> i'm fairly new to playing it my father-in-law gave me a banjo that was his he was gonna uh, put it in the yard sale and i said mm, i'm interested so he gave that to me and that's how i got started so it was only last summer that i started but i'm, I'm really enjoying it Oh, so it's kind of a COVID hobby. hobby. It is a COVID hobby, yeah. Yeah. Do you do you have the all the finger picks? That's the claw hammer, right? I do claw so hammer. Do. So yeah, so finger there's finger picking, um, yeah. which is like a three usually three or two finger style finger picking. But I do claw hammer, which is striking. Uh, so you kind of form a claw with your hand. You strike the string with with one fingernail and then pluck with your thumb. So it's yeah. It took a while to get the hang of that, but uh, yeah. It's, I tried that, but I didn't, I didn't dump the 10 hours necessary into figuring that particular pattern out. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to end the recording there and we can chat. Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining me. Oh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. I've um, watched many of your other interviews um, and enjoyed them thoroughly, so I've, I've really enjoyed the chat. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for adding your voice to my meager collection, but also for speaking out and using it to help others. You know, I really think your whole video series is making a huge impact. Um, and, you know, you're, you're a good interviewer. And I mean, it's, it's clear that your heart's in the right place. You know, I think people feel comfortable talking to you for that reason. Um, My tongue finds itself in the wrong place every once in a while, but well, that happens to all of us. But uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know so many people that have watched, um, you know, the, the, the gender um, playlist specifically. I've shared it hmm. with others. Um, it's, you know, it, it's not that I necessarily agree with every single thing that everyone says, but it's all a part of the conversation that needs to be happening as as a society right now. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I see what you're doing is just the topic with the queer theory lens removed from it. That's, that's all I'm, I'm seeing in those conversations. And I, and I relate to that. So I really appreciate it. You know, ultimately 
the best way to defeat postmodernism is just to not use it. <laughs> <laughs> Reality works on its own yeah. just fine. It's hard when you're when you have been caught up in it to disentangle yep. yourself from it, right? So I still I still catch it, you know, these little little roots of it in my hand that I'm plucking out, but I'm I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just you take that claw hammer and just like. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.